Hi, thanks for listening to the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. In this episode, I have an opportunity to moderate a, a panel that took place at Berkeley's Haas Healthcare Conference. This was a group of academics, providers, students, researchers, and others who all came together for a full day focused on SUD. This was a little bit prior to the the acceleration of the the COVID uh, situation, which is part of why we've been on break for a little bit. To that end, and just a quick programming note before uh, I jump in and introduce uh, this episode, we have a couple of other episodes that we will be releasing in the next couple of weeks with some COVID-adjusted content, but these are episodes that were recorded back in February, of course, as the whole world has kind of seemed to stand still or pause for a little bit, we have been uh, trying to be thoughtful about the right way to proceed with this series. You will uh, see a couple of episodes pop up shortly, one in which I provide a background and and viewpoint on how we're seeing uh, the COVID crisis play out and the impact on Medicaid, and then some of my colleagues are are going to go a bit deeper in solutions. So look for some of that content coming up. For this episode, I had an amazing opportunity to sit down with uh, just three uh, powerhouse women uh, in healthcare and focused on uh, the issue of substance use disorders. I introduced them during the panel, uh, which is live with the audience. But this is Dr. Danielle uh, Schlosser uh, with Verily, Dr. Anna Lemke, who's with Stanford, and Daniela Tudor, who's the co-founder and CEO of We Connect Health Management. So like I said, three amazingly brilliant and dedicated professionals, and I think you'll like the discussion. Thank you everyone for joining uh, the Dismantling America's Addiction Complex panel. I'm pleased to introduce my friend, David Smith, as the, the moderator of this panel. David is the founder of Third Horizon Strategies on the board of North America, uh, Sinai Health System, uh, project executive of the Medicaid Transformation Project. So, David, I'll let you take it away. Thanks to uh, all of you who have taken the time to um, spend a few minutes with us talking a little bit about our country's current addiction treatment and recovery conundrum. We want to spend some time talking a bit about the delivery system and the efforts in in driving long-term recovery for patients not only in the system, but really creating better and easier access points for the 90% of those suffering under the duress of a substance use disorder. So I'd like to go ahead and introduce my colleagues up on stage who are going to dazzle you with some really uh, unique insight and perspective. I uh, know all three of these uh, women and have come to deeply appreciate their expertise and their passion for this issue. Dr. Danielle Schlosser is a senior clinical scientist at Verily Life Sciences, which is an alphabet company. She acts as the clinical lead overseeing the tech-enabled behavioral health portfolio. Daniela Luzi Tudor, who's the co-founder and CEO of We Connect Health Management, a technology company that's decreasing costs for addiction recovery across the U.S. and across the addiction spectrum by focusing on behavior change and contingency management. Daniela is also a person in long-term recovery and energetically shares her story as a a means both of, I think, inspiring others to think about their roles and their contributions to the system and, and her journey to sobriety. 
And then finally is Dr. Anna Lemke, uh, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. She's a medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, program director for Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual uh, Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is, is well known for authoring of a book called Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. If you've not ever heard of that book or read that book, I strongly encourage you to pick it up. We, we wanted to try to organize our uh, comments uh, this morning along two core domains. First is a a bit of a diagnosis on how we got to a situation where we not only have a 90% treatment gap in this country, but that we have an addiction treatment industrial complex that does not typically serve to, to promote and keep patients well following their discharge. And we want to talk a little bit about the anatomy of that dilemma. And we want to talk about some of the things we collectively believe are happening in the industry to really move the ball forward and advance a, a fundamentally different way of both paying for care and delivering care to those with a substance use disorder. So Danielle, you're obviously doing some exciting work at Verily. Would love for you to talk a bit about what, what you have seen historically as the primary contributors to this challenge and dilemma and how mm -hmm. you all are thinking about addressing it. Well, thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be on the panel with uh, such amazing people. So at Verily, many people may wonder why is a tech company working in healthcare and why are we working in addiction of, of all places? When I was joining Verily, I hoped that all problems were going to be solved by technology and data. <laughs> but, but that was not the case when we first set out to try to understand the opioid epidemic. There were almost uh, religious and philosophical debates about you know, what happened, what are the right approaches to take, did find a silver lining that, you know, perhaps instead of having these uh, debates about what we should do, whether we should provide uh, medication or help people with abstinence-only approaches, that perhaps we can set up an infrastructure where we can learn and scale information in a way that's similar to how you think about Google Maps scaling location and being able to help empower people navigate uh, their lives just like they're going to navigate their recovery. Annie, the thing that has always struck me about you is you take this remarkably uh, forensic look at the, at the system itself and as a person that has practiced and, and lived and labored in this work in this field, you really have a sense of where all the failure points are and would love for you to respond to that same general question. What are the core limitations that are preventing us and our treatment system to really advance a, a long-term recovery ethos? Well, I think the sort of more obvious answers to that are, number one, we don't educate healthcare providers on how to screen and intervene for substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. The education now is just about as poor as it was when I graduated from Stanford Medical School and consisted of the CAGE questionnaire, which is a four-question screening instrument on how to assess for alcohol use disorder, which nobody wants to ask because, God forbid, somebody should screen positive, you wouldn't know what to do for them. And then the other big uh, problem, which, again, persists today, is just that there is almost zero incentive from a financial perspective for physicians to screen or intervene for substance use disorders. 
We just don't get paid to do that kind of work. So you have a combination of no toolbox and no money to be made, and you're going to end up with very few uh, practicing physicians or training medical students or residents going into the field of addiction medicine. On top of that, you have all kinds of invisible incentives inside of medicine to not actually um, uncover the problems of addiction, but instead to do things that are uh, paid for, things like prescribing an opioid for pain, which gets folks in and out of the door quickly, which also garners uh, happy patients, at least for the short term, and uh, satisfied customers, good ratings on patients, uh, rating satisfaction surveys. One of the things that I, I, I don't think people outside of medicine necessarily completely understand is that my scores on patient rating satisfaction surveys directly impact my professional advancement. If I don't get good scores, I will get called in front of a professional assistant committee and I will be asked what I am doing wrong. I work at Stanford and that happens at a place like that. But at many healthcare systems, it's even more directly linked to whether or not our patients are satisfied customers, whether or not we've seen enough patients in a given day. So I get a monthly remuneration chart, which is a graph that charts how much I should have billed in a given month against how much I actually billed. I can bill a lot more if I see more patients quickly, if I do med management instead of talking with patients, and if I just generally prescribe pills. So... Those are a bunch of the things that sort of invisible forces conspiring against taking care of these patients and lots of incentives to do other things which ultimately may in fact contribute to the problem of addiction. Anna, one thing I'd love for you to comment on is we've got data and we've got incentives. There's also a cultural dynamic here that I think is problematic. How do you think that has been created and how difficult do you think it's going to be to break that? Well, I think, you know, what, what you're alluding to is that very complex dance between patient and provider in the room, which can defy logic and data, protocols and algorithm. You know, most people go into medicine in order to help people, to alleviate suffering and to save lives. We want to be liked by our patients. And when you're in that interaction where a patient is requesting a certain type of procedure, a certain type of pill, you know, we are generally the type of people who want to comply with that. Engaging patients in difficult conversations, including conversations about substance use problems, is a good way to alienate many of them very quickly unless they've come specifically looking for help for that problem. And we know that the majority of patients with substance use disorders are not showing up in addiction treatment centers. They're showing up in emergency rooms, in pediatricians' offices, in primary care offices. So how do we remain in that compassionate stance? What I hope for for healthcare in the future is that we can build a healthcare system that will actually uh, incentivize wellness for the long term and not just quick fixes that make people feel better in the short term. We really have to remember addiction is a chronic relapsing remitting illness. There are lots of things we So that's the insurance issue. You know, people just having even coverage for things that are really high cost and copay that I was lucky enough that my parents were able to pay for. I actually had locked myself in my parents' home for three days so I wouldn't change my mind about going into inpatient. And finally, there was a bed open. So when I went in for the screening, the counselor, I got lucky again, he said, if I don't mark on here that you're intoxicated, your insurance isn't going to cover you. And he actually marked on the sheet that I was intoxicated going into inpatient. 
And I looked him in the eyes and I said, if you send me to outpatient and not inpatient, I'm going to die in the next week. Like, I knew that. Mm. And so I was really, really lucky again that somebody went outside the rules of the system to help me. Then the next point where, and this is where the inspiration came for me to start WeConnect Health Management, I learned through my four-week stay there that, one, the relapse rate is enormously high. 80% of people relapse within the first year, if not the first 90 days. And I looked around to this incredible mix of people, from businessmen to athletes to women and men experiencing homelessness. And I looked around, and I realized 80% of us were going to overdose or die in the next year statistically. And I felt, gosh, for a chronic condition, that's a really bad, bad statistic, and it's really unacceptable. And I realized why. On my 28th day, when I went into my discharge appointment, they handed me a care plan that listed 10 things I'm supposed to do on a daily or weekly basis. It included the traditional 12-step um, meeting requirement, going to trauma therapy, doing an outpatient program, changing the way that I eat and exercise. And they gave me a piece of paper and sent me out, out on my way. I was lucky enough that I was desperate enough to go to my first 12-step meeting and start engaging into every single one of those activities. But that's not the norm, especially for people that are going back to unhealthy environments. My counselor had to talk to me at length about not going back to my partner, who was also using, and go into a sober living program. I went into a sober living house for six months, and that curfew saved me from doing that. But again, I was, I'm, you know, white and privileged, and I had parents who were actually able to pay for all of these things. And that was the inspiration for WeConnect. We've built a platform, which I know we'll get into later today, that uses evidence-based research to keep people accountable to their care plan on their mobile phone, in their pocket, motivated, and get rewarded for those activities in a positive way that also impacts their social determinants of health. But And now there's other platforms that are in the similar vein of this emerging industry. But five and a half years ago, something like that didn't exist. And we've had to fight tooth and nail to prove the cost reduction and the benefits of that so that the industry would start engaging with, with us. So that's a little bit about my experience. It's, um, it's powerful. Your described moment of clarity was... Uh, I, I recognize I have lost control. I recognize that I need help, and I'm going to reach out to this primary care physician, and I'm going to ask for help. And that door you thought you would be able to walk through, it turned out you were unable to walk through. And the thing I lament about our system is that a 90% treatment, got 9 in 10 of those of us suffering under a substance use disorder are not in treatment. Danielle, let me jump back to you for a minute. As you uh, joked a moment ago, data does not solve everything. Data begins to tell us an awful lot about the pathways and the routes people are taking and where we can start putting doors. How, how do you think about the role of data, the role of Verily, in creating far more right doors than we have wrong doors? Well, so I think, you know, when I listen to Danielle's story, obviously I'm, I'm struck by the emotion of it and the courage you had to seek help. And I feel such a sense of disappointment about that initial encounter with that physician who just completely let you down. But to try to take a step back and unpack, like, your journey and the different critical nodes for you, there were certain decision points that occurred along your journey. Some were by you, some were by the care team, 
And, and that is a place, I think, where data plays a role. There is a tool out there by the American Society of Addiction Medicine that's adopted by payers who really advocate for the use of that tool because it's supposed to be a more objective way to recommend your level of care. And yet there's a lack of, uh, of consideration of understanding like, the person's experience and their preference and really weighting that in the decision tool. And so I think... Data, yes, plays a role, but we have to be human-centered when we imagine how data is used in these key decision nodes. And then I'm really curious about why were you successful? Why did you take that step to go to that first AA meeting? Why did you make that uh, determination to go into sober living instead of going back with your partner? And my wish, my dream, is that we could understand the you know tens of thousands of other people who were in your same position, and if we could find a way where we could map every Danielle out there and try to unpack what were the variables that really helped make you successful and make that information accessible to that person, give them the confidence and be like, okay, I can do this. I just need to take that first step into this next service. And then I have, you know, a 65% chance of being clean and sober a week from now. And then you see your purport, you know, your likelihood go up even more and more as you continue your journey and engage in your recovery. And that's, that's how I think about the role of data, it really from that individual perspective and in helping navigate, have guardrails for you so you feel like, okay, I really am on the right track and the people around you can help support and reinforce that. You just teed up a question that I think is Mm -hmm. really interesting. So, Daniela, you are in the business of creating uh, the means of trying to shape and influence behavior. Daniela, what have you learned, either in your own experience or or the experience of helping hundreds of other patients across the country, about the key things that shape behavior and the role of data in that? Yeah, so back to that day where I got discharged, I went through a Starbucks line and my credit cards were shut off. I didn't know at the time. Mm. And when they handed me the drink, the card didn't run through. I handed back the drink and I said, you know, I just got out of rehab. I'm sorry. And instead of them taking the drink back, they gave the drink back to me and they also gave me a cake pop. (laughs) That moment of someone's kindness and also giving me a reward It inspired me and I thought it was this like moment of like I am on the right track and my first thought of how I was going to build the WeConnect app is that it would verify when you go to your care plan activities and in return you get incentives. Clinicians and scientists and data scientists they found the work of contingency management which is just that it's giving people incentives for behavior modification. So today We provide people with Amazon gift cards as they reach milestones. And we also have on staff peer recovery support specialists that work with each and can message through the app, meet with them in person, and work on their recovery capital planning. So they work with them on challenges around education, employment, living situation. So the data from their engagement of their behavior in their care plan, plus their data around their social determinants of health, is giving us this incredible amount of insights about people and their journeys and what is working because we also survey them on frequency of use of their substance of problematic use, 
and all sorts of other things. So my vision is very much in alignment with yours is that much how for the AIDS epidemic, they determine the AIDS cocktail of like figuring out for each individual what works and based on that of that menu and what they pick, they can live a manageable, happy, long-term life. And so the goal and the vision is that if, you know, Bob in Wisconsin, 24 years old, in recovery or attempting recovery from heroin, well, we've seen a thousand other Bobs before, and we're able to actually say, well, for, in his case, medically assisted treatment and trauma therapy works, maybe not 12 steps or some other modality, and be able to actually be prescriptive about that using tools like machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Anna, maybe pitch a question in your direction. Um, as a practitioner and as a systems analyst, where do you think data really is most critical in, in, in driving the hearts and minds and that culture change we talked about earlier? If we succeed in establishing certain cultural norms and then we show people how they may be deviating from those norms, that can have a very powerful impact on behavior, not just for patients but also for providers. And I'll give you two examples. Often when I have Stanford College students uh, come in to see me who are engaging in problematic alcohol and drug use, they will say to me that their drug use is totally normative because everybody around them is using in the same way. Alcohol is a good example because we have more data on alcohol. And then show them on a pie chart where they actually fit in compared to other college students, compared to the general population. And very often there's a surprised reaction to that. Wow, I'm in the one percentile? I thought everybody in college drinks this way. No, in fact, that's not the case. And what's probably happened for you is that you've been able to normalize your heavy consumption by affiliating with others who are consuming heavily. The other examples with providers, so what's happened with the opioid overprescribing crisis is that one of the interventions that's been shown to be quite effective in healthcare systems is to send prescribers information on how their opioid prescribing compares to the other people in their healthcare system or in their geographic region. Uh, all of a sudden, when you're now being told, wow, you know, you're prescribing way more opioids for pain than, you know, Dr. Bob right next door and than anybody else in this county, and you see a very swift change in behavior. And I think what really shapes behavior change in the long run is leveraging those relationships like your reputation in the community, like your relationship with cared for others. Leveraging intangibles like where you fit in, the things like culture, how your narrative or your story or the collective narrative fits in with your life, meaning, purpose, and all that stuff. Danielle, I would love you to respond just a little bit about where has the platform and the contingency management work you're doing producing measurable evidence-based impacts, and, and where do you think we still have a ways to go in the science behind that? Yeah, so I agree with Anna that it's a combination of, which is why about a year ago we added peer recovery support specialists, which are like, for those of you that don't know, so basically social workers but with lived experience is how I like to describe it. 
And these are people that have been certified in each state and trained but are in recovery themselves. So the individual is able to build trust and connection and a relationship with this person to work through some of their most intimate, difficult social economical problems. And so my belief and the way that we drive our company is that technology does not replace human connection, but it can enhance it very effectively. So when someone's getting a reward for going to their trauma therapist where they're working on all of those things, their identity, their story that they're telling themselves that can be detrimental, um, in combination, that's a really powerful force. So we also get anecdotal testimonials from our patients that we work with, and they'll say, you know, I was able to use the Amazon gift card to get a car part for my car so I could go to my job interview and go to my therapist uh, appointment. And so I think taking contingency management and delivering it in a really easy, fun way through technology, especially in rural areas where people are two-hour drive from their FQHCs or any kind of care, in conjunction with the human connection, which is the most powerful in that regard with the peer recovery support specialists, it gives them this like rounded solution. And the motive behind how you build technology is really important. One of the things that our healthcare system lacks is investing heavily on creating platforms that again enhance human connection and look fun and are easy to use. We are fortunate enough that we have investors that have worked on apps like Uber and Slack, but if you look at most healthcare apps in the space, they're not easy to use or they don't look very nice. They're not, they don't have little intrinsic things like confetti popping up. The University of Washington noticed that having animations in an application got them to use the application a lot more. So we have to come from it from both perspectives, like the human connection and the delivery of that and making it accessible can be uh, helped by technology, but technology will never replace human connection. So actually helps answer a key question about myself. Sometimes for no reason, I'll just text my wife the word congratulations just to see the confetti pop up on my <laughs> iPhone. And I didn't, I didn't realize there science. was a reason I was doing that. Hashtag Thank you. Right. <laughs> um, we've spent some time talking about culture. We've spent some time talking about data. Anna, you raised what I've come to feel as the cynical economist that I am, uh, incentives, and, and the way in which we reward and acknowledge the behavior of a system that today is diffuse and fragmented and, and not coordinated in service of patients, and it's rooted in our country's fee-for-service culture, and there's a change that's got to be made there. What do you think that change is, and, and how do we get from where we are to where we need to go in using the dollar to change the behavior of the system? As somebody who practices addiction medicine and so fights the system on a regular basis, there are a couple features about it that make our current system especially ill-suited to address it. And one of them is the importance of having timely access to care when that individual decides that they want to change their life, which, by the way, may last hours. Mm -hmm. um, if they cannot immediately get into some kind of robust treatment environment, it's not going to happen. It's important to realize that people who are struggling with addiction are already exhausted, right? And so many of their physical and intellectual resources are being occupied by uh, their addiction that 
you know, there can't be navigational barriers along the lines of, you know, calling and finding somebody who's covered in your network like that. So, you know, that's just one of many examples. And, of course, the fractured nature of the system, you know, how do you get from this provider who refers you to that provider who refers you to the inpatient, who refers you back? So it's the lack of uh, seamlessness, which is especially problematic uh, for people with addiction because the world is an addictive place. There's already this sense of actively swimming upstream just by living in the world. What we're really asking people to do is to recuse themselves from the world as it is in order to get into and be in recovery. And that is a very tall order. It's incredibly helpful and really lends credence both to to a system's addiction to a particular way of economizing its work to the individuals that it serves. Danielle, same kind of general question. I know we've talked over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. and this is something that you're thinking a lot about. The data notwithstanding, when you think about a system as fragmented and diffuse and, and disconnected as ours is, how do we get to a place where we can better lever the dollar to drive integration? Yeah, so we've been talking with payers quite a bit about how we can change the payment model and how our learning health system infrastructure can inform that. We see our role as being kind of an independent player in this and that, you know, we're we're a tech company. We're not a treatment provider or a health system. We're trying to give infrastructure to help generate accurate information that can really help benefit everyone, the the patient, the provider, the payers who are trying to really understand, well, what should we pay for? What should we incentivize? They don't even know any of that. And so we're a bit in the uh, Stone Ages with understanding what care pathways we should incentivize and how we should pay for it. And so, you know, this this is where I think we have to get much more sophisticated and how we learn and how we show the value of, of some of the good work that's that's underway. There's there's two critical domains that, that you're hitting on. Danielle, I want to pitch this to you. There's the domain of kind of the core recovery infrastructure, which is everything from a emergent care, primary care, detox, crisis stabilization, inpatient, outpatient. Mm-hmm. And it's the back part of that journey, the tail of that journey that is much longer, that is m- much less resourced, and we can't even figure out the front end of the journey, let alone <laughs> how do we support uh, people in year two, three, four, five in that recovery journey? And how, how do you think about that enduring long-term recovery journey that, that really becomes critical as we exit the, the core part? We are talking to one of our partners, one of the largest MCOs in the country, or the world potentially, and they gave us feedback that some of their primary care physician's offices have a stigma around medically assisted treatment. There's a professor and clinician that I met who actually opened up in a hospital system, a uh, MAC clinic specified for addiction, and not only did the system end up saving millions of dollars because the influx in the ED was reduced, but all of their fears around what type of people are going to come in here and all those kinds of things just didn't simply materialize. So I think at the beginning of the journey, it's important for primary care physicians to start not only getting equipped about it, um, start to prescribe medically assisted treatment, and 
though, recommend in conjunction with that therapy, 12-step meetings, all the other tools, because medically-assisted treatment alone doesn't solve the underlying traumas that kindle the fire of addiction. So I think that's important for the systems to change at the beginning, to set people up to create more habits around long-term recovery. And then solutions for rural areas like telemedicine, again, creating that human connection through video with a therapist, digital therapeutics like ours and others that are out in the field that allow people to start community, creating relationships with other people going through like experiences. And at the national and policy and cultural level, we need more stories being told in entertainment that will destigmatize addiction in a way that people are going to start perceiving it like diabetes. Diabetes requires insulin on a daily basis. Someone with substance use disorder on a daily basis requires some sort of intervention. And again, depending what that is for that person, it can differ from yoga to mindfulness to mat to 12-step meetings to therapy. So those are some of the things that I think about. In the realm of storytelling, I'm just going to do a quick plug for AM. There's a, there's a podcast that started in September, October of last year called The Last Day. It's mm-hmm. done by a company called Lemonada. And yeah. they, they analyze kind of the last day of a person's life who has a substance use disorder. And they kind of look at what, what drove that. And they look at the history and the contemporary nature of that. And it's, it's fabulous. Do not, do not listen to it in a public place because you will find yourself openly weeping <laughs> as you listen to this because of the power of it. Let's, let's conclude our discussion with one question I'd, I'd like all three of you to answer. It's the same question. You all have 30 seconds. Anna, we're going to start with you. Based on the trends that you are seeing, things we've discussed and many other things you're seeing that we haven't discussed. If you had to play this all out in 10 years, are we any better at this than we are today? Do you feel a sense of optimism? And and if you do, what does that future state look like? I, I definitely feel a sense of optimism, at least from my perspective inside the healthcare field. And my optimism comes primarily from the young people that I'm seeing interested in trying to solve this problem. It is so inspiring to have medical students, to have residents, to have a master's in public health, to have PhDs of all ilk, you know, knocking on my door and saying, I am interested in doing something about this problem. That was not the case even five years ago. And so I I feel very, very optimistic that we are going to come together as a society and work together to figure out what to do about this problem. Having said that, I think it is going to be the number one public health problem for the next century or five um, because it is (laughs) endemic to wealth and modernity that we are struggling with the problem of addiction. Dopamine economy. Addiction is the most base of any human characteristic. Same question, Daniela. I mean, I definitely feel optimistic. I think that the one thing, though, that we can't let our optimism override is our bias when we are building technology solutions, especially with artificial intelligence and machine learning. While it is definitely increasing the reach and it's going to help people, like I mentioned, in rural areas to have access to healthcare in ways that they've never had before, and that continues to grow, We have to be optimistic, but very ruthless and critical of each other so that we build the right solutions and we don't exclude any populations or anybody. 
love that. Ruthless and critical of each other. Um, Danielle. Well, I think that the seeds of disruption have been planted. We have two significant the trends. The one-liners on this panel are amazing. Go ahead. Seeds the, the, of disruption. The two, the two significant trends I see that make me really excited are uh, uh, industry convergence. So this is where you have the Googles of the world moving into healthcare, Amazon. And so to me, that's an accelerant of innovation and, and, and new solutions. And then the other piece is uh, uh, consumerism and healthcare converging. So I think there is more of an emphasis on promoting well-being in products that we use every day. And I think the long-term effects of that are preventative. You're building up resilience in people. You're helping them be able to potentially prevent the manifestation and or limit the morbidity of, of these illnesses if they emerge. So really enthusiastic about uh, the future. I'll, in conclusion, I'll just add my two cents and um, uh, uh, sharing the optimism of the three of you. I've long felt that one of the, the biggest tragedies of this challenge is that we have the infrastructure, we have the science, we have the training and men and women who are passionate about this, like Anna, that wake up every single day in service of this issue. We have everything we need to solve the, the problem. Our own sociology and our own economic self-interest in the system oftentimes precludes, in this case, always precludes our ability to, to do things differently. But I share the sense that Things are shifting in the culture, that there is a new generation of technology and data are going to allow us to do things we've not been able to do before. We understand recovery science and we understand the economics of payment. And though we're not great at it yet, we're moving in that direction. So I share a 10-year sense that while this one, we will not have solved human addiction, we will not have solved for the dopamine economy in 10 years we're going to have a system that reacts to it much differently than it does today. So please join me in expressing thanks to our panel for their contributions. And thanks to all of you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that was absolutely amazing. Uh, and really appreciate you all taking the time. So.